0: Hi everyone, I'm Adam Johnson. I'm a dad and a rare disease patient advocate, a self-proclaimed dadvocate. From the onset of symptoms and even after an eventual diagnosis, the isolation was almost as excruciating as the symptoms themselves. I felt so alone in so many ways. One of the most prominent ways in particular was as a parent. I knew I couldn't be the only person with a rare disease who was also trying to raise children, but it sure felt like I was. As I've learned, when there's not a specific community you're looking for, one that you need, sometimes you just have to make it yourself. It's taken a while, but I finally decided to do just that. And here we are. This is Parents is Rare, a series brought to you by Energy in Action. Living life as a parent with a rare disease can be quite paradoxical. We laugh and cry. We're vulnerable and scared. We're brave and afraid all at the same time. Parents is Rare is a community where parents like me, who have a rare disease or chronic illness, can connect, share, support, and be supported. Hi everyone, it's time again for another episode of the Parents is Rare series of the Energy in Action podcast. I'm your host, Adam Johnson. Today, I'm speaking with Dr. Stephanie Mihalis. In addition to being a mom and a wife, Stephanie is a licensed psychologist, a nationally certified school psychologist, and a mental health and chronic illness advocate. She is real, authentic, and connects in a loving way. Our conversation, well, specifically and mostly Stephanie's thoughts, is one gem after another. She really delivered. It's one of those episodes where, if you're like me, you'll want to pause, reflect, and go back to jot down some notes. There's just some incredible insight and perspective on many levels. I know you'll enjoy this conversation with another outstanding rare disease mom, Dr. Stephanie Mihalis. Hi, Stephanie.
1: Hi, Adam. Nice to see you today.
0: Nice to see you as well. Thanks for taking some time for me. I really appreciate it.
1: Of course. I'm glad to be here with you.
0: Same here. I'm really excited to have this conversation with you. It's been a joy to get to know you a little bit through social media. One of the many positives that have come out of this experience of me trying to just get out there and find people going through a similar journey has been actually doing just that. And you're one of the folks that I really enjoy having interactions with. So I appreciate you taking some time, like I said, out of your day to have some of these discussions that have been really helpful for me and hopefully helpful for others as well. Absolutely. So Stephanie, I was wondering if we could just start out by having you introduce yourself a little bit and telling us a little bit about you and and your journey.
1: Sure. Well, my name is Stephanie Mihalis, and I am primarily a psychologist and mental health and chronic illness advocate here in Los Angeles, California. I'm also a parent to who I call Kinder in Chief on Twitter.
0: I love that hashtag. It's the best.
1: <laughs> I'm trying to figure out what she's going to be as she enters first grade. <laughs> trying to, I've been thinking about that. She's obviously a kindergartner, almost six years old. And I am a wife to someone who I occasionally talk about also on Twitter. And I have entered the space On Twitter as we met approximately five years ago. I've had chronic illnesses actually since I was 16, but the actual rare disease space hit me approximately a year after I gave birth to my daughter. And that was when the first kind of rare disease posed its interesting head, as I call it. And then the second one came about approximately a year ago. And that's a little bit about who I am and how this evolutionary process came about.
0: Well, thank you for sharing a little bit about that, that that's, you know, one of the interesting dichotomies here as I try to balance out the the podcast, which is focused around parents as rare, right? And I've also found many folks with chronic illness and you've got the double dip going a little bit of the chronic illness life that you've had, like you said, since you were 16 and now the rare disease aspect. So you've, you've been dealing with the chronic illness for, for quite a while, right, since you were 16, as you mentioned. And then you had that space in between there where it was chronic illness without the rare disease. What was life like for you, Stephanie, when you were in the pre rare disease space, still working through your chronic illness?
1: Yeah, I think that given that the chronic illness was related specifically to the female population, there was still a lot of ambiguity around it, but it still was a definitive diagnosis. And so I felt like I, you know, most likely was seen and heard, but it was still a very long process because I was diagnosed very young and it was very painful and very taxing. And there was a lot of problematic features with it. And so I had a lot of problems growing up and I needed to learn to advocate for myself. And advocate within the medical community. And I think that was part and parcel, you know, one of the reasons, in addition to a pretty traumatic event with 9 11, why I went into the healthcare profession. I think then, as the rare disease hit post pregnancy, my relationship with the medical community changed because now there were so many unknowns about the disease state, the medical doctors not understanding me and not understanding them, that I really needed to figure out a space for myself, how to really hone in on who I knew I was, what I was experiencing as a person and how to relay that and hold my own energy as I went through the process. A lot of people in the rare disease community talk about medical gaslighting and the experience of, you know, People telling us we don't know about our bodies and this isn't happening. And as a psychologist within, you know, the healthcare space, I've heard about this so much. And then now I was experiencing that. And to walk between both spaces was such a new experience for me having traversed that.
0: Yeah. And I think that's such an incredible perspective that you're able to bring to the conversation. And it's going to be really helpful for a lot of folks to hear your your input. Incredibly valuable. And as challenging, as difficult as I know that had to have been, as it is for many of us as we go through that diagnostic odyssey, it's such a challenge. It's incredibly difficult. It's very traumatic. It's very profound. And I know for me, when I was you know, having some of that place where I started doubting because of the doubt that other people were putting onto me, specifically folks that are, you know, highly respected in their field or experts in their area. When they're sitting there looking me in the eye and saying, it's all in your head, that sent me for a loop. And it was really difficult, really challenging. How how was that for you?
1: It was probably one of the most challenging experiences of my life of going doctor to doctor and kind of being looked at with like a second and third eye of like, is this really happening? You know, this is an anxiety disorder, this is this, this is that and I have been through enough therapy in my life, both from a personal and professional standpoint, that I think that I'm capable of knowing when something is an anxiety disorder or a depressive disorder, or I'm too stressed with this. I knew that something had physiologically happened. There was an acute change and response in my body, and I needed help and if i had to continue to go and push to find the right doctors which thank goodness i did and i have a team now that sees me and understands and you know we have certain diagnoses in place now such that i have a treatment plan that is helping me to the best possibly that can, because as we know in the rare disease space, we don't necessarily have exactly protocols to fit our diseases per se, but it took a really long time to get there. And I think that's why it's so important that we also have mental health practitioners who are really specialized and have a niche in this space so that they understand also what can happen, not always, but can happen in the medical community, because I think that clinicians on the mental health side can also get sucked into this. And so I think that's where it's so important that we have some training and or clinicians who have this type of experience from the get-go that they know what happens. And I think, I guess, a positive, if you want to call it that, is that I've entered that space and I know what's going on fortunately or unfortunately.
0: Absolutely. Well, keep preaching on that. And I'll back you up all day with that one, Stephanie. I, <laughs> I, I mean, I couldn't, I couldn't <laughs> agree more. I couldn't agree more. And, you know, like, like I said, I'm really appreciative that you are able to bring that perspective in and for, for anybody that might be listening, cause that's a common refrain that I have in a lot of conversations, whether it's as part of the podcast or, or outside of it, just in, in normal conversation with folks, where do we go to find that? And how do we go to find some help from folks that that get it? Because I I've struggled with that. You know, there's a, a few resources like a psychology today. You know, might be a, a spot to go. I don't I don't know. Do you have any other tips or pointers for folks that are still grappling with that? Or or does it really boil down to we still got to get there?
1: I think we are getting there. And I think we have a lot more room to go starting with training programs because, you know, there is this health psychology, and I'm saying that in quotes for someone who can't see me right now, but there still is this kind of like patriarchal misogynistic viewpoint with health psychology that we can CBT someone out of their fear. Well, I'm sorry, but guess what? When you have a rare disease, there is a lot of fear. We don't know what's ahead of us. We don't know what new doctor may or may not get on the train. And even if we have a really good team, which I do have a really good team, still bringing on a new doctor, they may not understand what my team has built in the past five years. And that within itself is anxiety provoking. And no amount of quote, quote, CBT or ACT or all of these kind of nomenclatures is going to help. So I think it is, in fact, a very big shift in the pedagogy and ideology of what training programs bring to the table so that's kind of like first and foremost i think secondarily it really is about clinicians learning from patients and real life experience and opening up more dialogue with us and vice versa rather than who's the expert because guess what doctors are the expert too And so are patients. And how do we learn from each other so we can shift the field? Because there's an expertise on both ends. And I know there's like this thing that always goes around Twitter and other social media, like, you know, patients Google, well, doctors Google. And it's always this like back and forth argument. I don't think anyone negates that doctors or psychologists or physical therapists aren't experts. They absolutely are. And so is the patient. How do we figure out how to meet in a common ground here, especially in the chronic illness, cancer, and rare disease space? And then I think finally, the clinicians uh, like myself who do have an expertise in this, not only experientially, but also didactically and formally from an education standpoint, how do we actually get ourselves out there? And how do we change kind of licensure issues? Because for example, you know, you may be out in Iowa, and someone may be out in Idaho, but they can't work with me because of board regulations. How do we make it clear that there is an immense need, and there is a niche, and there are only a few of us, and how can we build that bridge because of such a gap? So I think there's a multifactorial issue going on here.
0: For sure. I would I 100% agree with that. And I think after, especially after hearing, you know, your, your, answers to those those questions, those thoughts that you have there. Let's just put you in charge of it. Stephanie, can we just do that? And then you, you like, I mean, you need to rule the world in this. Yeah.
1: <laughs> I'm ready to roll. I have so many ideas. Yeah. I love it. Stuck in this small space here in, in Los Angeles, but I'm ready.
0: <laughs> I love it. Well, the work that you are doing there in Los Angeles, Stephanie, is incredibly valuable and much appreciated. You know, I, I, I know that uh, sometimes it Probably a little bit of a thankless job, but I wanted to make sure that, you know, my gratitude is expressed to you and on on behalf of myself and many others, I know that you serve and help and take care of. And that leads me to my next my next question. I wanted to kind of get some insight from you on. I, you know, you're a wonderful example of how just because, you know, somebody might have a rare disease, chronic illness or rare disease and a chronic illness, right, doesn't mean that they can't be successful and what they do still, right? And I'm curious about how you, you know, how how do you navigate doing those things and, and balance everything out? It's gotta be quite a challenge for you. But, but I'm curious to know if you've got any insight there. What does that look like for you?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. I think I'm still trying to figure this out. Mm-hmm. I have had to grieve quite a bit from where I used to be to where I am now. I used to be on editorial boards and committees and all of that. and And when this disease hit, things did shift for me. I think that I'm still in a process of prioritization and understanding. I think first and foremost, when we're talking professionally, my my patients came first and my clinical practice did. And so I think that's why the other types of activities uh, kind of went to the wayside. I think at this juncture, advocacy and figuring out some of the things that I was just alluding to, I would really like to get into that space because I think that's where systemic change happens especially within the clinical space. And that's where I would like to start to figure out my time, right? I think then it comes to how do we balance taking care of a child who needs me and a husband and a family? And then finally, how do I take care of myself with all the ebbs and flows that you and some of our listeners understand because day to day, I frankly don't know what's going to happen with me and how do I manage that from a psychological standpoint, emotional standpoint, and then frankly, the physical standpoint. So to be candid, I think it's still really a work in progress. I rely a lot on um, my medications, both like prophylactically, long-term management, and then kind of acute medications that I will need to take sometimes, you know, in the morning to help me get through the day. I rely a lot on the support of my husband when things are very, very difficult physically. And then I rely on a lot of, you know, self-care for lack of better terminology. Do I have a heat pad at work? Um, when I go home, am I, you know, decompressing appropriately so I can manage the next day? Are we getting support for cleaning or cooking or am I doing that? And so I think it's all about kind of environmental variables as well. So I can function back and forth between personal and professional but it is not easy and some days can be very very difficult
0: yeah absolutely and there's so many different you know whatever whatever analogy you want to use right like pots on the stove or you know balls in the air you know sports analogy like there's just so many different things and there's you mentioned variables, I find there's variables for the variables even, right? <laughs> I mean, it can, it can be so challenging, because you might feel like you've got a little bit of a beat on something or feeling pretty good about a plan that's been developed in order to accomplish the things that we need to accomplish. And then all of a sudden, something will come out of, you know, left field out of nowhere. And All of a sudden, we're back to square one, and we've got to reevaluate everything in the moment. And that becomes an incredible challenge on top of all the other challenges that are already there.
1: That's right. Sometimes I think I'm like finally cruising, and then all of a sudden, a new symptom hits literally out of the blue. And I'm like, okay, so am I contacting this doctor? Am I hitting a dose of prednisone? Am I canceling? Am I calling this friend for emotional support, like exactly what you said. It's the variable to the variable to this variable. And literally everything could be turned upside down in a moment's notice.
0: Oh, it's a lot. (laughs) It's a lot.
1: Yeah, it is.
0: Well, one thing that I was going to mention kind of along those lines is when I think back to parenting, because I've got a a kinder kiddo as well. And then my, my daughter's a little older. She's finishing up sixth grade, getting ready to head off to junior high next year, which... look out. It's just around the corner. I know, right? Just around the corner for you too, Stephanie. I'll be here before you know it. Uh Um, But I, I think about these things in terms of parenting, like especially when the kids were younger, but it's still very much the case now. I feel like as a parent, there's times where, you know, me or my wife, we've got things dialed in and figured out We're like, yeah, we got this. And then all of a sudden something will happen and we'll do something the same way we did it the day before. And it won't work. And we're like, what's happening here? What's going on? I don't understand what's going on. And it's the same way it feels like with the rare disease life, with the chronic illness life, there's just continual roadblocks that pop up and navigating through those is one of the most difficult things for, for me, especially when that impacts my kids. That's that's one of the hardest things for me is when what I need or what I'm experiencing, what I'm going through alters what their expectations were, especially when my son, you know, who's younger, thrives on that routine, thrives on that schedule. How, how do you work through that with your husband and, and your daughter?
1: This is such a poignant and difficult question to answer, especially with my training as a child psychologist. It um, weighs on me quite a bit because I know the things that create a space for a developing child. And then frequently I feel like I'm failing or can't give her the exact quote, quote, perfect space. And then I try to think to myself, well, a thriving child also may become resilient without the perfection and talking through that with her. I think like where things stand at the present moment is transparency. To the best of our ability, that is developmentally appropriate for her, you know, and that's obviously changed over the years as she's aging, even though she's still quite young. She knows that I have an illness, you know, she sees me inject with my weekly and every couple day treatments, she sees my medications, and so she knows what's going on. And we have discussions about that to, again, the extent appropriate. And so when things change, like you mentioned, I'm able to reference that so that she doesn't internalize that it's about her or that she did something wrong so that things have changed. And I think that is always the pinnacle of what happens in our household because, you know, children kind of create fantasies that it's about them, especially at a young age. And so I think for us, it's so important to hone in. It's not about you. It's about me and what's happened. But we want this to be about your experience. And so we are going to do what we can to adjust for you to have the best possible experience possible. So if we can't now all do the family Road trip to the Redwoods, you and your dad are still going to go because we want you to go while mommy is unfortunately too sick to go. But hopefully, tomorrow we can all reconvene again. So it's about adjustment, I think, accommodation and flexibility, and also learning how to deal with the frustration or the sadness or the feelings uh, in an open way with the hope that she can generalize this to the rest of her life, even though. I guess unfortunately it's not what we would have hoped but it is what it is.
0: Yeah. So many nuggets in there that I think folks can really pull from. That was well said and these are tough questions, they're tough you know, topics of conversation. I get emotional just bringing these things up sometimes or thinking about how to even process this myself, right? Like and and, and then when we kind of take those feelings and we look at what our children are going through with that, it, it kind of reminds me a little bit about, as you were sharing there, when Brené Brown talks about the story that I'm telling myself in my in my brain, right? Like sometimes we get so mixed up in that, this is what I'm telling myself. And our kids might be going through some of those things as well. So I, I really, you know, like the, some of those tips that you gave there in terms of doing things in an appropriately developmental or developmentally appropriate uh, way for the children based on their age and how old they are and what they do. Do you, Stephanie, have any, any either, you know, general or specific things that you might be able to share with folks who are kind of grappling with that? Because those are words that I go back to as well myself as a, as a former educator. I used to teach elementary school kids. So Kid-friendly language, right, is one thing that I like to do and tried to do when I had that discussion with my kiddos. What about those folks that haven't spent time in front of 25 seven-year-olds staring back at them or somebody like you who has so much expertise in developmentally appropriate things for kids?
1: I think it's always important, even if you've been in the scheme, you know, longer than me, for example, to continue to have the dialogue with your children or your teen or even your burgeoning adult and to never take for granted that again your child at various developmental stages needs continuous dialogue and conversation around this and when i say continuous i'm not talking about daily but even you know a one month check in about how they're doing in the family unit and you don't need to make it about you in a narcissistic way per se but like how are you doing in the family? Like what's going on? Because children and teens and growing adults still carry kind of an immense weight when a parent has a chronic illness or rare disease. Like that is fact. And I think it's really important for a parent to know that and take responsibility for that. And so I think that's like recommendation one is a check-in. I think You know, the second thing is with the younger kids, probably eight and under, language can sometimes be very difficult. So especially around this space. So, you know, movement around this discussion can be helpful if you're going to be talking about it. So throwing a ball, having a squishy toy, taking a walk and talking about it, or even doing art around it where parent draws something and then child draws something and you both are able to share around that sometimes frankly children don't want to talk about it or even teens and so pushing your agenda can actually be very harmful so i think that's also something to consider is if someone doesn't want to talk about it don't push it and then also offering a family member the space to talk about it with someone that's not you And this doesn't necessarily have to be a therapist. It can be a clergy person. It could be another parent. It could be a grandparent. But again, developmentally, sometimes kids feel like they're burdening you by telling you as the ill parent. So that's another recommendation uh, for children is to give them the option to talk to someone else.
0: That's such a valuable perspective and insight to share there, Stephanie, because I I definitely feel like that could be the case. And one other thing that I've, you know, I've considered as, you know, we, we discuss some of those very issues in our household is if we're looking for a place for our children to go and share, and if it is a situation where maybe they don't want to bear it all to me, or even sometimes to my wife, right? If we find another avenue for them to pursue another safe place, another safe person for them to explore that is that is a wonderful idea. It's a great idea. And especially initially, when we start thinking about that, some of those points that we talked about a little earlier about feeling like a failure in some regards start to creep in for me into my into my head, right? And I know it's not right. I know it's not accurate. I just feel like that's a natural, at least it was for me, inclination to have, like, oh man. They can't come and talk to me. They should be able to come and talk to me about everything. But what you just said was so right on. And I just wanted to highlight that for anybody else who might be feeling some of those things. I feel like both sides of that coin are are, are accurate. They could be true. They could be important things to happen. And and they they might be the way that each side, each party interprets things. And that's okay.
1: Right, exactly. That's a good point you bring up as well.
0: So when you were kind of navigating the, the symptoms that were onset coming on, trying to figure out what was going on with these new symptoms with the rare disease. And you're going through those ups and downs. It's such a roller coaster, right? And we've talked a little bit about grief. That's something that I still really struggle with. I go through this process. It's messy. It's all over the place. And I, I know that that's been just one of the biggest things for me is recognizing that I'm grieving because I always used to associate grief solely with death. And now I'm learning that we grieve so many different things in so many different ways. How has that grief process been for you? And how do you try try to handle that or acknowledge that?
1: I think, again, like you mentioned, it's an ongoing process for me. And I think that sometimes it hits me smack in the face when I start to ignore it. And I think I try to ignore it when my health is declining and then I'm like, oh, wow, I was ignoring it. And then all of a sudden these more symptoms crop up or I'm working myself to the bone again. And it's like, wait a minute, you're actually like not respecting what's going on with you. Hello, wake up. And then the grief comes in again because it's like, wait, you're not actually who you were five year, five and a half, six years ago. And now you have to face it again. And so it just like keeps cycling over and over again. And then once I settle into it, it becomes very painful again for me because it comes back to the realization that yes, actually I am like not who I was. And that is a painful process because it takes a toll again on what I can and can't do. Like instead of like something that could have taken me a couple hours, it takes me maybe a day now or... Uh, I have to like rest a full day so that I can do X. And so it just is this constant cognitive grappling. I wish that I could go to my child's vent now that no one's masking. I can't go. I'm too compromised. And so there's just literally, it, I keep getting smacked in the head with wake up calls. And then the grief cycle continues and continues. I don't know if it will end. This is something I actually like ask myself, like, will it end? Like, is there an end point? Or when you have a rare disease and the nature of it and the constant up and down of it, is this just the nature of it? Like, that's kind of this existential question that I have. And I'm not sure what you think about that, but I don't know.
0: Well, I don't know either, Stephanie, but I I thank you for bringing that up because I've kind of gone through that exact process that you just described myself and I I anticipate there's probably many others that have done the same thing. When I start to think about that question and the way that that shapes things moving forward, it gets almost overwhelming for me because like like you said, I don't like grief isn't something that finishes and I'm still working through and trying to learn more about it over the last year or two uh, is when I really started diving into it, but I don't like it. <laughs> it's hard. It's necessary. I need to do it. I, I feel like it's better now when I do recognize it and acknowledge it rather than shove it aside and pretend like everything's fine. And that is a strategy that I had adopted before where you do, if you just keep busy and push forward and keep doing things, pretend like everything's fine, maybe it is fine not the case. (laughs) It's not the case for me. I'm learning that the hard way. But yeah, I I agree that it's not something that'll ever necessarily be done. And there's these little secondary losses that pop up that are sometimes even harder than the primary losses that were experienced initially as well. I don't know if you experienced that, but that's tough. Those are some tough pills to swallow.
1: I would say the secondary and tertiary losses are actually feel fundamentally worse. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And they usually, I feel like surround family outings and these just tiny things that I'm like oh wait a minute and then they just keep coming and coming and coming and they're very hard to swallow
0: yeah well I'll share with you and I had one of those just last night and it was one that I hadn't experienced for a while before we've got a a family gathering coming up in in June which you know there's a lot going on there but a, a graduation out of state and looking forward to it excited to go and check it out, you know, and have a lot to work through with that, right? Traveling in general is just way different for me. I used to hop on a plane multiple times a week, travel all over the country, do all sorts of things with teachers all over the place and was on the go pretty well continually. And I loved my job. And so when we're looking through arrangements and trying to figure out where's the best place to go, what's the best route to get there, I pulled up an app on my phone last night, was looking for a place to stay in this area. And it's a place I used to frequent for work. And just scrolling through that list and trying to think of the best place for us. Oh, I used to stay there. The last time I was here, I had this meeting. Last time I was at this place, I saw this person. It was brutal. I, it was one of the worst, like sinking, feeling, pit in my stomach. I can't believe this. I, I didn't want anything to do with it. And I shut down. I was like, I'm not doing this, right? Like, that's enough. I can't, I can't handle this right now. And those things pop up quite often. Where there's just little different things happening in an everyday moment that I used to not think twice about, and those things are popping up and and it becomes challenging. And so back to your original kind of question to me there, your point to me there was, yeah, I don't see this ending, even though it might change in terms of the relationship that I have with the grief.
1: Yeah, I think that's a good takeaway here is maybe our relationship will change with it. Like the ease possibly with it or the flow that we have with it. But I'm not sure that it will ever stop because all of these, sec- like we said, secondary and tertiary things will continue because that is our life. And I also think it like circles back to the people in our environment so that we can be supported in our grief process, or just in our day to day, it's always helpful that in some way, shape or form, they can likely understand these basic things, because they don't have to live it. But this is our life. And, and it's complicated.
0: Very much so. So I'm curious, Stephanie, I one of the questions I always like to bring up with with guests, when we talk about all things, parents is rare, is when when you look at, you know, how you interact with with your daughter and the different activities that you do with her. Do you have any, you have anything that you can share to give tips and pointers? I've always learned various ways to do things that I thought I might not be able to do or things I used to be able to do with my kids. And uh, I hear somebody else talk about what they do now in a different way, right? Like an adaptation or an adjustment to some sort of activities with, with the kids. Can you think of anything that you do? with your daughter, uh, you might be able to share with with us that maybe will spark some new ideas for us or just give us some insight into how you adjust with those activities or interactions?
1: I don't know what's been an adjustment because basically since she's been born, everything has been an accommodation and an adjustment. So that's all I've known. But, you know, I think that Her and I have evolved into doing activities that are less exercise intense. We communicate with one another in the sense of like, where are we at today? Like we have an open dialogue about that. I have really tried to get a lot of activities that can pique her interest and that I don't have to be like jumping and bobbing and all of these things. And we always set time aside on the weekend to be able to do those. So we will get like squishy art things or painting rocks or something that she also can have a memory from that. So it's not like, I didn't do anything with mom or it was boring because I wasn't running around constantly. And so that has been really productive and helpful. Obviously, though, she's five and a half, so she really likes to move. So in that respect, we have found places where she can like scooter and run, but I don't have to do that. And I can sit and watch her and she still feels like I'm being active because I can do like a countdown, like red light, green light. And so it's still an engagement. We also, you know, do a lot of reading again together. So it's not just her reading, but I read, she reads. And so it's kind of choral responding. So I think, you know, the primary takeaway here is reciprocality and connection. So that there is the memory that I'm engaged and active rather than just kind of like laying there. But there are times where I am just laying there too, but we have a physical connection. So I may be kind of like rubbing her leg or her foot's on my foot, and we have a couple shows that we like to watch together, and then we watch them and talk about the shows. And so I think it's important as a rare disease, chronic illness parent that you have a multitude of things to pick from and you're able to pace it. So activity, downtime, activity, downtime and that's something that I have at least found productive with her.
0: Yeah, absolutely. The pacing is incredibly important for me as well with my condition that I have. We've got to pace things out and the kids are getting to that place where they understand that more. My daughter's been good about it from from the beginning really just because she was older when all this stuff started for me, but my son even more so now. As well, and yeah, thank you for sharing those ideas. There's a wonder, a lot of wonderful tips and ideas, and I would encourage folks to check out the hashtag KinderinChief, and and also the hashtag Rare Disease Mom. You've posted some wonderful things on social media with some of those, mm-hmm. and you know, I think there's some some great insights there as well that folks can connect with you on on social at Ask Doctor Stephanie as well on Twitter. But one, you know, one thing that I wanted to bring up kind of around that conversation, I saw a tweet that you put out there the other day that talked about a a good reminder and for me it was a well-timed message that you put out and you might not even know how impactful it is to me or to others but you said when there is chaos internally and externally you learn to enjoy the tiny things they become paramount and I was just like oh man that hits it hits hard (laughs) and I appreciated that perspective it was really solid and timely for me so thank you for that as well Lots of wonderful insights there. Thank you. Yeah. So as we start to wrap up here, Stephanie, I was curious to, to see if you had any other, you know, any other things that you've you've kind of learned or experienced or maybe any words of, of wisdom or advice, last last thoughts for maybe other parents that might be in a similar situation that you and I kind of find ourselves in.
1: This is a little bit tangential, but hopefully hits the point home. I think as parents and then as possibly anyone who's also a working parent or a professional possibly even you know in the limelight in the professional healthcare community the reason that i decided to openly share is that i wanted to end the stigma around rare disease and chronic illness and it's really important again for me to drive that home i think that there is this concept that we're inadequate that we can't do or that we need to be in hiding And I think this comes from a lot of different things that, you know, Adam and I could talk about probably for hours, but we don't need to be in hiding anymore. Yes, our bodies like may not be working right. And then sometimes emotionally, we may have ups and downs, but we are still parents. We are still lovers. We are still humans. We are still people and we are still professionals. And a lot of us have decided to come out openly like Adam has even here on the podcast and me come out openly on social media to share our plight and to hopefully get the FDA moving on some of the things that we need as well as other advocacy groups and organizations because our children deserve a life with us, our partners do, and so do the people that we uh, serve in the professional community.
0: 100%. Wonderful closing thoughts there. Thank you so much for that, Stephanie. And, you know, I the, the last thought that I had that I wanted to share with you kind of ties right into that. This I mean, What you just did is a perfect example of this. One other thing that I saw as I was kind of getting ready for our discussion was that you know, a tweet a while back, you were talking about your dad and you mentioned that he was always saying there's no dress rehearsal, Stephanie, so show up. And boy, do I admire how you do that on a daily basis and how you've done that here today in our discussion, Stephanie. So thank you again from the bottom of my heart. Really appreciate it. Keep up the stellar work and we'll stay in touch.
1: Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. I'm honored.
0: I hope you've enjoyed this episode of Parents is Rare, a series of the Energy in Action podcast. Please be sure to leave a review and a rating for this episode wherever you listen and subscribe and listen to the Energy in Action podcast, where we talk all things Mito. Until next time, remember to show up, be vulnerable, supportive, and kind, and give yourself permission to feel along the way.